There was a captain of the ship who looked out in the dark night and he saw ahead some lights and it looked like it was another ship coming towards them. And so immediately he tells the signalman, you know, hey, tell that ship they need to alter their course 10 degrees south. And promptly a message comes back and it says, no, you alter your course 10 degrees north. So now the captain's starting to get a little upset that his commands are being ignored. He says, okay, send him another message. Tell them, you alter your course 10 degrees south. This is the captain in the United States Navy. So another message comes back and, no, you alter your course 10 degrees south. I'm a private in the Navy. And so now the captain's really angry, and so he sends another message knowing this is going to get them to change their minds. Alter your course 10 degrees south. This is a battleship. And the message back says, no, you alter your course 10 degrees north. This is a lighthouse. <laughs> Sometimes we get confronted with information that leads us to know, okay, we have to make a choice here because if we don't make the right choice, we're heading towards disaster. That's where we find King Nebuchadnezzar this morning in Daniel chapter 4. He gets a warning much like that battleship of, Hey, King, you are heading towards disaster. Do you want to change your course? And what we find for him really is, a, is helpful for us to learn, man, how do we respond or how should we respond when we get a message like that? When we're confronted over our sin, where we're confronted about something's wrong, we're confronted that disaster is ahead of us, what should we do and what happens when we don't alter our course? And so if you would turn with me in your Bibles um, to Daniel chapter 4 um, as we read this together. So stand with me if you are able. So King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream, and it made me afraid. As I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they may might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they couldn't make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, king of the chief of the magicians, because I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream." that I saw and their interpretation. Then the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. And the tree grew and became strong, and the top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw in my visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said this, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off the leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots for the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth." Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. 
The sentence is by decree of the watchers. The decision by the words of the holy ones to the end of the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And Belshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you hate and whose interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which food was for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of heavens lived. It's you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches the heavens, your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump of the roots of the tree, bound it with an iron of bronze and the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over. This is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree from the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you may be driven from among men, and your dwelling may be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity." All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over to you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws." But the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say to His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom till more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would be with us this morning. Lord, would you humble us before your word? 
Would you warn us? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is you have for us this morning? And help us to listen to it and to obey it. Pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So our first point we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at the warning, you know, kind of the consequence for not listening to the warning and the escape. But our, so our warning is that sinners need to repent. So our first point in your blanks is that sinners need to repent. You know, we begin, Nebuchadnezzar kind of has this dream and it terrifies him. And it, and it opens in the first three verses. You may notice um, we read these verses last week and I read them again this morning. Um, and it's Nebuchadnezzar giving a proclamation to his kingdom of the greatness and the wonder of God. Uh, now, it's a little uncertain where these verses exactly belong. They may belong with the story we read last week um, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, or they may belong here this week kind of introducing it. Um, I don't really know it fits either one, so I just read it both times. Um, can't go wrong reading it more. But so it introduces it, but in verse 4, you know, he's at ease in his palace, he's prospering, he's feeling great, but he has a dream that makes him afraid. And so he calls all the wise men, everyone, hey, come tell me. Come help me figure out what this dream means. Now, this time, unlike the time before with the dream of the image and the statue, where he didn't tell them the dream, he wanted the interpretation, yet here he tells them all the dream, and yet they can't answer it. They're stumped. Their rubrics, their dream tablets, they don't give them the answer to what this means. And so he waits, and finally at last in verse 8, Daniel comes before me, he who is named Belshazzar, the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And so he goes and he tells Daniel the dream because he says, okay, Daniel, you can tell me what this dream means. Help me figure this out. No one else can. So in verse 10, he, he recounts it. I saw and behold, there's a tree in the midst of the earth and its height's great and it grows and is strong and the top reaches all the way up to heaven and it's visible to the end of the whole earth. So it's this massive tree that almost takes up the whole globe. It touches all the way up to the heavens. It covers it. You can see it from everywhere. And it's got beautiful leaves. It looks great. It's not like terrifying looking. It looks amazing. There's fruit abundant in it. It's probably not just one kind of fruit. There's all these different kinds of fruits growing from just this one tree. And all the beasts of the field find shade under it. And the birds of heaven lived in it. And all flesh is fed from it. So this tree, it's, it's almost should make you think of Eden. If you picture the Garden of Eden and just a big massive tree in the middle of it and all the animals and birds and everything's great and, and eating under this tree, that's kind of what Nebuchadnezzar sees, something much like that. But as he lays there, something bad happens to the tree in 13. And I saw in visions, behold, a watcher, a holy one, comes down from heaven. Now, the watcher is a kind of unique title. It's an interesting word to use. I, I think this is describing an angel. Um, it's definitely something from heaven. It's some kind of um, divine or angelic being. It's not divine in the sense that it's God, but the way we think about angels. And so this, this being, I think an angel proclaims aloud and says, chop down the tree, cut up the branches, strip off the leaves, throw the food away, let the beast run from under it and the birds fly off from the branches. So man, let's chop this tree down, let's cut it all up until only the stump remains. It's only a small piece, but it's important to notice. The whole tree doesn't go away. The stump is left there intentionally. They don't dig it all the way up. But he says more in 16, and the intention seems to say, you know, the intention here is that this tree or stump represents a person. 16, let his mind be changed from a man's and a beast's mind given to him. 
for seven periods of time or seven years. Then it gets more terrifying. If I heard this in my dream, it would scare me. In 17, the sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end the living may know the most high rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowest of men. If you had a dream where an angel showed up and said, this is by decree of God, the angelic host, and it's coming true, that would probably scare you. You'd want to go ask somebody, uh, you, you want to help me figure this out? I, I might have an idea, but I want to make sure I get this right, because it seems like God is telling me something, and I, I want to listen to this. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. But Daniel hears the dream, and he's alarmed, just listening to it. He's alarmed, and his face seems to change so much that Nebuchadnezzar can see. Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And he's so alarmed, the king sees it, and it starts to make him nervous and scared, which it should. And he answers, hey, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or interpretation alarm you. Okay, and I don't think this is him saying, hey, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You know, don't worry about it. Just tell me what it is. I think he's getting kind of nervous here because he knows Daniel can understand the dream, and he just told it to him, and now Daniel, you know, his face is turning white, and he's like, this doesn't sound good. You know, hey, uh, no, 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 Daniel, it's fine, right? Like, don't worry about it. It's, it's a good dream, right? This is a good thing you, you're going to tell me, because <laughs> if the guy who understands your dream is scared, you should be scared too, and Daniel responds, well, you know, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you. It's interpretation for your enemies. It's not a good dream. And Daniel likes the king. He's saying, man, king, I really wish this wasn't about you. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't say that it's not. But he says, man, this is not good. I really wish this wasn't going to come true for you. And he begins to interpret it. Starts by explaining what the tree is in 20. You know, the tree that you saw, which grows and becomes strong, and all the leaves and all the animals under it, 21. It's you, O king, who've grown and become strong, and your greatness has grown and reaches the heavens, and your dominion the ends of the earth. The tree is a representation of Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And like that tree, God has allowed Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire and his kingdom to expand all over the earth and to cover these nations and for many birds and beasts and people to come dwell and to eat under his rule and his dominion. Which that part sounds good, but the next part of the dream again is not so good for the tree because it gets chopped down and cut up. And the angel says in 24, or Daniel says, this is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree from the Most High, which is what the dream said, which has come upon the Lord. This is God warning you of what he's decided. So listen up. And he elaborates, you know, you're going to be driven from among men. You're going to live like beasts of the field and maybe eat grass like an ox and be wet with the dew of heaven for seven periods of time shall pass over you. He's going to be given some kind of mental illness or, or change in his mind where he's going to act like an animal outside for seven years. He's not going to live in a house. He's not just going to be in his palace locked up in a room. He's going to be out in fields eating next to ox and cows and beasts. And his hair is going to grow and his nails are going to grow. I mean, can you imagine living for seven years like that? I can't imagine for sleeping on the ground for seven years, let alone not being in a house being out with rain, having to eat grass and drink from rivers. You know, why is this happening for seven years or when is it going to stop 25? Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. You notice that phrase is repeated over and over throughout this, that God is the God of heavens and His kingdom is eternal, His dominion's everywhere, and anyone who has dominion anywhere is only because God has given it to whoever He will. 
You don't have it because you're so great. You don't have it because you're so smart. You don't have it because you're a military genius or because your dad was king before, so now you're the king now. You have it because God decided to give it to you. That's the only reason. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It's just God gives to whomever He wills. And this is going to last. He's going to have to stay like an animal like this until He acknowledges that God is the one who gives kingdoms. And God alone. But it's interesting that the kingdom remains in 26, you know, and it's commanded to leave the stump of the roots, and your kingdom's going to be confirmed for you till the time that you know that heaven rules. So the stump represents his kingdom. The kingdom isn't going to fall apart. It's just going to sit there and wait till you decide to repent and come to your senses, which is a miracle. Okay, that alone, if a, if a king disappears and wanders off for seven years and is acting crazy, that kingdom is going to fall apart. More than likely, that's how most empires, most kingdoms, most nations fall apart. When the tyrant, when the dictator in charge, when they get knocked off and someone else comes in, that's a lot of instability. And yet God says he will sustain it. And there's, interestingly enough, you can look at history, there was a king of Babylon who went into some kind of self-imposed exile for seven years that historians have no idea what he was doing or, or why, but he seems to have come back afterwards and everyone was kind of cool with it. Well, this is God's Word. That's what he says. 27, the key to understanding the dream here is really in, in this verse. And I, I think not just the dream, but this whole passage in 27. So Daniel tells him how to respond to this dream. Right? He says, here's the warning. God is going to send this judgment on you, and you need to repent. Here's how you repent. 27, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Please listen to me. Okay, I would listen to Daniel. If he said, this is what's happening to me, I want to follow his instructions afterwards. It says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening to your days or a lengthening of your prosperity. So he tells them to repent, right? And repentance involves it's a turning away from your sin and not just stopping sinning, but it's turning towards righteousness. That's why both of these are here. It's break off your sins and practice righteousness. And I'll be honest, I've really wrestled with verse 27 a lot. Uh, I've struggled with this verse kind of all week and even last week when I was reading it, trying to get ahead and wrestling with Daniel. Because so much of this passage is about Nebuchadnezzar's pride, right? His exalting himself above God and thinking that he's the one in charge and him the one doing everything. And God is punishment. It seems to be a way of humbling him. Even, right, it ends in 37 of saying God can humble those who walk in pride. And that's part of Nebuchadnezzar's sin problem for sure. And really, ultimately, there are many who say, you know, that all sin comes from pride. Ultimately, it's the father of many sins. But you would expect then for Daniel's rebuke to say, hey, break off your sins, practice righteousness, humble yourself. But he doesn't say humble yourself explicitly. And so, I mean, he confronts a sin, tells him to repent, but he... You know, that's good, but then he says, your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. It's this parallel idea, right? So practicing righteousness is equated with showing mercy to the, the, the oppressed. And I read a bunch of sermons and a bunch of commentaries this week, and most people seem to just kind of ignore verse 27. Just read it and move on and get to the rest of it. And why? Well, you know, I don't know. I, I think they're... It seems to make us uncomfortable, and it's a little weird. It's strange. I mean, really, I was surprised to not just see Daniel say, Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, humble yourself. 
But he doesn't. He gives this specific instruction. And I'm really attracted to the places in the Bible that other people tend to ignore. If you haven't learned that about me yet, I, I like to, to pick books in the Old Testament. I like to pick and look through passages and study things that are weird or confusing or people, whatever other people aren't looking at and ignoring and skipping over, that's where I want to zoom in and say, well, well why? There must be something here. God put it here intentionally and we're all ignoring it. Well, why are we ignoring it? What's going on here? And the practical right application is to show mercy to the oppressed, or your passage may just say, poor. And Nebuchadnezzar's definitely oppressed people, right? You can't build an empire like Babylon without oppressing people. Daniel and the Jews and the nation of Israel is there as an oppressed people who have been conquered, slaughtered, their temple destroyed, and carted off into a foreign <laughs> land, given foreign names, have to eat foreign food, and are forced to try and worship foreign gods. You also can't have a king with a palace bigger than anything else who can build, you know, 90-foot statues of pure gold to himself without people being poor in the land. I imagine. So why is this, this oppression of these poor people mentioned? You know, it could be that part of his pride has led him to oppressing others. You know, he thinks he's the greatest human being who's ever lived, so everyone needs to serve him. That seems to be kind of what he's saying. He's definitely used all this power to just work for himself. You know, maybe he thinks he got all this, this money and glory because of his own hard work. If other people would just work harder and try more like he has, they could be great kings like him too. You know, I, I don't know. That, that could be part of it. And, and part of it here, you know, we might be tempted to start arguing about partisan politics and think, well, it says oppressed. That's a, you know, oh, that's kind of a buzzword, and I don't like that. You know, but now I have to listen close, make sure you know our pastor isn't a closet liberal or something, because you can't, you know, have political opinions different than me and be a Christian. But so this words here it makes us uncomfortable. I want to sink in and wrestle with it. And here's the best answer that I have that I can come up with. It is all of my wrestling this week. If you got a better one, you know, you can tell me later. But what I think here is it seems that showing mercy to the poor. Showing mercy to the oppressed, showing mercy to the weak and the lowest of the low reveals your spiritual condition, or reveals your repentance. It's a marker of it. It's evidence that Nebuchadnezzar really doesn't believe he's the greatest person in the world anymore if now what he's spending his time doing is instead of ruling and lording over the, the low and the weak and the poor and the oppressed, he's actually showing mercy to them. And he's sharing with them. And he's giving to them. He doesn't think that he's better. In a sense, too, this is the way that we treat the lowest also reveals how we feel about God. Because so often throughout God's word, he shows special attention to the poor and to the weak. We study this in men's Bible study, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And for the humble and the meek, they, they inherit the kingdom of the earth. God has special concern for the weak and forgotten of the world. His disciples were not the people who were at the top. His disciples weren't the cream of the crop of the Pharisees. They were fishermen and tax collectors and women. And even Paul, the apostle Paul, right? He's converted, which is miraculous and crazy because he's there and he's killing and murdering Christians. And then he comes to the faith and he spends three years back. So, you know, you'd want to check out that guy, make sure that he's, you know, legit. Make sure he's actually even a Christian or he's not going to kill you. It's not a trap. And so years later, we read about in Galatians, he goes to visit the apostles and they test his doctrine to make sure he's okay. And they, they question him, they quiz him, they kind of go through it to make everything line up. And the only thing they tell him at the end is, hey, make sure you remember the poor. 
Your doctrine's all good, but one thing that we want to make sure is that in your ministry you care about the weak and you care about the poor and you care about the oppressed. This is, you know, why? Because I, th- I think at least how we treat the weakest and the lowest, it, it reveals whether or not we're really humble. Reveals whether or not we're really walking with God. And the heart of this whole section here is Nebuchadnezzar is told that he has to repent. And he's told what he needs to do to repent and to reveal that. He's got to alter his course. If he doesn't repent, if he doesn't start changing, then he's going to head towards madness. But what do, you, what do we see in the next one? The consequences of his um, choice, or really the reality is that God's judgment um, is coming. In your second blank, God's judgment is coming. And Nebuchadnezzar's problem is he doesn't listen to that rebuke. He just ignores it. He just goes on. We notice in 29, at the end of 12 months, so 12 months go by, that Nebuchadnezzar's heard this rebuke, that he's been confronted, that the prophet has told him, you need to repent of your sin or this judgment is coming. Nebuchadnezzar does nothing, nothing for 12 months at all. And I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar was probably pretty nervous for those first couple days, right? I mean, he was alarmed for that day. He had to get an answer right now. But then, you know, a couple days go by, everything's okay. Now a couple weeks go by, everything's okay. A couple months, now you start to think, well, maybe I don't have to worry about it. Maybe Daniel got this one wrong. Yeah, maybe this judgment's not really coming. Maybe it was going to be for my enemies. He said he hoped it was. Like, I've been pretty good. This is probably enough. And so then he, he walks off in 29 after 12 months, and he's walking along the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, which reminds me of King David. Nothing really good seems to come when kings are wandering out on their roofs um, in Scripture. So he's wandering around on his roof, and he looks out, and he says, you know, it seems to be just talking to himself here, which is also kind of a marker of arrogance or weirdness, and says, isn't this great Babylon that I've built by my mighty power? And the residence for the glory of my majesty. He's looking out of this kingdom and saying, man, look at how awesome I am. Look at everything I did. I did this all by myself. I'm great. This makes me think of uh, my three-year-old son, Calvin, right? He really loves to do puzzles. And he's pretty good at them. He, he, he's not too bad. Um, but when they're new and he hasn't done them a lot, they're kind of hard and difficult for him. So he needs some, some help till he figures them out. And we don't do them in Grant's around, so Grant will go down, you know, if I'm home, and he'll ask to do puzzles, and we'll bring him out, and we'll sit down, and he'll pick up every single piece and say, Dada, help! Dada, help! You know, where does this one go? What's next? Dada, help me! Dada, help me! And so we'll do that kind of the whole time, all the way through the puzzle, and finally get all 36 pieces done, and the fire truck's made, and he'll stand up and say, look, Dada, I did it all by myself! Son, you haven't done anything by yourself. Every four seconds, you're asking me, Dad, I help. I tried to tell you do it by yourself, and you cried and got upset, and no, this piece, and what about this piece? But then every time we're done, it's, I did it all by myself. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing here, just like that foolishness of thinking, well, God's told me several times, multiple times, and he showed it with miracle after miracle in my life, actually, and yet I still haven't given my life to him. Look at all I did, all by myself, me, Nebuchadnezzar. And so God's finally had enough, much like I have enough when Calvin says that. God, well, the words are still in his mouth as he's still making this ridiculous statement. God says, okay, I gave you a year, but it's done. It's time for you to, to go to timeout. The voice falls from heaven, and God says, time's up. Judgment's here now. The kingdom's departed from you. I, I'm taking it away from you. This kingdom you're so proud of, it's not yours anymore. You're going to live like an animal for seven years. And this punishment seems really harsh 
to us. Right? There are those who don't like God, don't like the God of the Old Testament, and say, man, this is just cruel, this is mean. Why would God do that? As if they miss the 12 months that God gave him to repent. Every day was another chance that God could have brought the judgment, and he didn't. He showed grace, 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 and yet now, okay, now it's time for judgment. But so why would, it, why would he do this? I think there's a couple of reasons he does this. You know, why does he turn him into an animal? It's not just God being creative or getting bored when he to mix up some different judgments in here. Uh, I think he chooses this particular judgment because it's humbling. This prideful king that thought he's greater than everybody, is better than the lowest of the low, now becomes lower than the lowest. Right? There's hierarchy among everyone, even among the poor and the oppressed. And somebody who's not even in their right mind, can't even live in a house, can't do anything, lives like an animal, they're as low as you can get. The person who thought they were above everyone is now probably the lowest person in the entire Babylonian empire. He gets to do this. Those people he refused to show mercy towards, he gets to be one now. See how that feels. I think more is at play here too. I think this is also an example of what sin really does to us, of how sin dehumanizes us and changes us. And the further we get away from God and the more, you know, we just follow our sinful hearts and do whatever our desires lead us to do, it turns us more and more into animals, not more and more into people and humans as we were created to be in the image of God. And so Nebuchadnezzar is turned over to his desires like Romans 1. He gets to see what it's like. Okay, you want to do life all by yourself? Good luck. You can't even be a human being all by yourself. You can't even eat and be normal with other people unless I show you mercy and grace. That's what sin does to us. When we, we pursue it, it turns us into monsters. And 37, immediately the word is fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. At that very moment, again, judgment was coming slow, seems slow, but now it's here and it comes fast. Right away, his mind goes. And he's driven from among men because, of course, you would get this person out of your house if they were acting this way and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. He thought God's judgment would never come. He could just go in his sin and his pride as long as he wanted, but it came. Because God's judgment comes, and it is coming. And don't interpret its delay as it meaning it will never be here. It is coming. Every moment that it delays is just another example of God's grace. But we can't escape his judgment. Too many today act like Nebuchadnezzar. You know, they believe that since God hasn't punished them yet, they can do whatever they want. They may even make arrogant statements. Well, if God really was God, He would reveal Himself to me now. Do something, God. Oh, you didn't see? I can continue in my own ways and mock God all that I want. They think because God shows mercy now that He doesn't have any power and that they're free. But every human being who's alive now or whoever will live, will learn like Nebuchadnezzar did. God's judgment is coming. And there's only one escape. Don't fool yourself. Don't think you can escape because you won't. He might return today. It might come now. Or it may not. And you may not die. You may not be judged for decades to come. But God's judgment is coming and all of us need to repent and throw ourselves at the grace and mercy of Jesus. So if judgment is coming, how do we escape? Our last point is repentance is the only escape from judgment. 
Repentance is the only escape from judgment. Really, Jesus is the only escape. After seven long years, seven years go by, but Nebuchadnezzar finally does it. 34, at the end of my days, of those days of of seven periods, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. Instead of looking down at himself or looking down at his things, he finally looks the right direction and he looks up at God, a God alone, to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And the first thing he does is I blessed the Most High. And I praised and I honored him who lives forever. Man, the first thing he does is he acknowledges who God is. Finally, he doesn't say one of the holy gods or, or the holiest of gods. All throughout this, he's just said, gods, gods, gods. Even in Daniel, oh, I know the spirit of the gods are among you. He's willing to acknowledge that God's one of them, but not that he's the only one, not that he is the highest. But now he does. And this this prayer that he gives, it's beautiful and profound because he confesses his sin, but mostly he just recognizes how awesome and holy and incredible that God is. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are, are nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and the inhabitants of earth, and none can say, stay his hand. None can stop him, and no one can say to him, what have you done? You notice at the end, he's saying, no one can say to you, what have, what have you done? He's admitting God's right. Saying, God, you are right to bring this judgment against me. You are right to punish me in this way for these last seven years. What you did was justice, and you are God, you are the Most High, and no one can complain about it. Which is wild that he wouldn't complain or whine. I would think if you know, it was me, I would have some complaints, have some whining, have some questions. Maybe I might confess first, but I, you know, God, I'm not sure that was fair. Why seven? Like, couldn't we just, a day would have been fine. Day would have been good, you know, but no, he doesn't. He just says, you're God. And me, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm nothing. True repentance. And he continues, he sends out a a proclamation to the whole kingdom in 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, wants everyone to know, I extol and honor the king of heaven for his works are right. All of his ways are just, including what he just did to me. Judgment though it was, it was just and righteous and good and holy and worthy of praise. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. He confesses his sin and he confesses the goodness of God. And what's the result of this confession and this repentance? Well, blessing in 36, at the same time my reason returned to me and the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor was returned to me. And my counselors and my Lord stopped me and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Gets everything back. He doesn't have to go be a prisoner. There's not someone else on the throne. He gets to go right back to be king of Babylon. And not just that, more greatness was added on to him. Part of this is showing your repentance doesn't just lead to us escaping judgment. It's not just a slate being wiped clean, but there is an even greater blessing along with it. Now, all of us have a problem similar to Nebuchadnezzar. We might not have had his dream or the specific warning from God, but we all have similar sins. All of us are prideful. All of us think that we are the greatest, at least in our own world, our own sphere, our own room. All of us are sinners in need of salvation. We might not shout things aloud like Nebuchadnezzar, like my son Calvin, you know, hey, I've done all of this all by myself, but deep in our hearts, we, we do think that. 
though we might, you know, we might be too arrogant and proud to admit it, or self-righteous enough that we, we think that we're better than that. And there is judgment headed for all sinners who don't put their faith in Jesus. And His judgment when it comes is fierce and terrifying. It's not something as simple as being turned into an animal for seven years. It is judgment for all eternity. And just as Nebuchadnezzar was turned over to a life without God to see what that was like, so all sinners who don't repent and put their faith in Jesus will be turned over to experience what life is like without God and without any of His grace and without any of His goodness. There's one way in which hell is not so much just punishment as it is a turning over to here's what you wanted. You wanted life without God and His goodness and His blessing and all of His grace. Here's what that is. It's terrible. But it's what you wanted and it's what you chose. And that judgment is sure and is coming. But the, only, there, the good news is there is an escape. The escape is provided by Jesus who died on the cross to give us a way out of judgment. Because we can't get ourselves out. None of us are good enough. And yet God loves us and He wants us to come and put our faith in Him. And He bore on His own body the punishment that should have been ours. And because of this, we can repent of our, our sins and put our faith in Jesus. And we can admit that He is the King of kings, not me and not you. And when we do that, we experience even greater blessings than Nebuchadnezzar getting to be king of the whole world. Though that would be great, it's not as great as eternal life. It's not as great as life will be in the world to come when our God returns. And, and be, there is eternal life and salvation, but we also get to participate in the kingdom of God. One day our king will return when he rides across the sky and he turns all of the empires and nations of the world to dust. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he alone is Lord. Like it or not, we'll all have to finally humble ourselves. But for those who choose to bend the knee now, that day will be glorious and wonderful and will bring tears to all of our eyes. And those who repent now will find themselves not just living with Jesus, beginning to rule and reign alongside Him in His kingdom and in the life to come. In conclusion this morning, we've just been reminded, you know, prideful sinners, really all sinners, have to repent. Because God's judgment is coming, and it's coming for everyone. No one can escape. The only escape is through Jesus, through faith in Him and repentance, turning away from our sins and turning towards our God. And so the, the challenge, if you don't know Jesus, you need to repent of your sins. Come to faith in Him. If you don't know Him, I'd encourage you, come talk to me, come talk to any of the elders. We would love to talk to you more about Jesus to answer any of your questions, to pray with you, to guide you. If you do know Jesus and you're a believer, maybe you've been a believer longer than I've been alive, guess what? You still too need to repent. Repentance is a daily practice for followers of Jesus. Because still there are days we stand up and we say, I've done this all by myself and I don't need you, God. And yet, God reminds us. And so repentance is the way that we escape. Don't be like that battleship or, or a ship too arrogant to redirect your life, to change directions. Repent, put your faith in Jesus, 
and see the blessings that are to come forevermore. I'm going to bow us in prayer and invite our worship team to come back up and lead us in one more song. Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning. God, I thank you that unlike King Nebuchadnezzar who thought he was greater than everyone in the world, Lord, you, though you are, chose to act like you were not. As Philippians said, you came down and, and emptied of yourself and, and were willing to live as a human being in a human body. You didn't come to make us bow down, but to serve us. Lord, I ask that we would live like Jesus. Lord, that we would humble ourselves, that we would serve the poor, the oppressed, the weak, and all those who are among us. Lord, would you help us to be a people who repent of our sins? Would you help anyone in this room who does not know you? Lord, would you bring them to you? Would you draw them to you? Would you help them have faith? And would you help them repent of their sins and come and experience the blessings of eternal life? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand as we continue to worship our Savior together? Amen. Hear this benediction from Numbers, from the God who loves you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. Go in peace. Thank you.